We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 66 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Wednesday, May 19th, 2021. Well, so much for all of that good feeling regarding the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, that team, our team, awful in the second half of a blowout loss at the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference's 7-8 game. On Tuesday night. No, the Wizards season is not done. We still have another shot to advance to the NBA playoffs. Home to the Indiana Pacers now on Thursday night. But that loss at the Celtics on Tuesday night, a classic make you humble kind of loss. A loss that was straight up the alley of one of the great friends of this podcast, the Iron Sheik. Make him humble. Yes, Sheiky baby. Make him humble. The Wizards got made humble. The Wizards got put in the camel clutch by Jason Tatum. Make him humble. Yes, Sheiky baby, total and complete annihilation in that second half on Tuesday night. My thoughts on the game coming up in just a bit. But hello and welcome. We had a shocker when it came to the Washington football team on Tuesday. You see, you never know when the next Washington football team shocker will pop up. And sure enough, on Tuesday, multiple reports that Washington has given Morgan Moses permission to seek a trade. He is done as Washington's starting right tackle. Just like that. At the snap of the fingers, like Kaiser Sose in the movie, The Usual Suspects, Moses is gone. What happened? Why is this happening? I have a lot to say about this. I'll do that coming up. And with this now, new look for Washington at the offensive tackle spot. So welcome on a special guest, Will DeWitt, founder and host of the Chicago Audible, which is a major podcast that covers the Chicago Bears. He'll tell us all about Charles Leno Jr., who may well now be poised to be Washington's 
New starting left tackle, Leno, Samuel Cosme, and Cornelius Lucas. That would appear to be Washington's triumvirate of offensive tackles for the 2021 season. Although, who knows what else may be about to go down. Ron Rivera, Don Ron, full of surprises these days. I have a preview for you for Capitals-Bruins Game 3 on Wednesday evening as the first round Stanley Cup playoff series moves to Boston. Caps looking for a 2-1 lead, the latest on the Caps injuries and absences later in the show. And I'll talk Nationals and Orioles, more losing from both teams on Tuesday night. The Nats offense just continues to do so little, and Matt Harvey got ripped for a second straight start for the O's. The carriage appears to be turning back into a pumpkin for the uh, former Dark Knight of Gotham. Rankings update on the podcast. The Al Galdi podcast shooting up 24 spots. Yes, 24 spots in the latest Apple podcast rankings in the U.S. football category. Number 34 in the country. You know, this podcast is me in my basement surrounded by pillows and blankets for soundproofing, taping shows at two in the morning. You and I are taking on the world and we're number 34 in the country. So thank you for that. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Yano. He says, well, Galdi, all that kumbaya good feeling on the whiz with all that offensive outburst that you like to detail, 146 points versus the Spurs, 138 points versus the Mavs, et cetera, et cetera. Down the drain tonight, you're a deep dive stat guy. How about this one? Wiz got outscored 76-50 over the final 26 minutes of this game. It means you're close, uh, not, and thank you, Brucey, LOL. Yes, thank you, Yano. I deserve that. It means you're close. No, the Wizards were not close. Not on Tuesday night anyway, but I'll tell you what. I'll tell you this. If you're trying to sell your home and you're not close, your home has just been lingering on the market and you're not satisfied with your sales process the way we're not satisfied with how the Wizards perform in the second half on Tuesday night. Or you want or need to sell your home and you're not sure to whom to turn, contact the great John Grandland, a.k.a. John G., He'll not only make it so that you're close, he'll sell your home. He'll get the job done. It means you're close. No, Brucey. John Grandland will not just get you close. John Grandland will seal the deal. John G. promises that if he can't sell your home at a price that you agree on, he will buy your home himself and he will back this up in writing. Also, John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for zero commission. Yes, you heard that right. Zero commission. I've been telling you about that. Some conditions do apply. Here's what James, who was having a hard time selling his condo, had to say about John Grandling. Quote, my wife and I would highly recommend John for placing your home on the market. With our previous broker, we had our condo on the market for three months without an offer. In our second attempt to sell our home, we made a wiser decision and chose John Grandland. After about a week on the market, we already had two offers. He's a real pro, has a keen understanding of the business and the latest marketing techniques to get a property sold, end quote. Find out what John Grandland can do for you. You have nothing to lose. To learn more and to get the value of your home, just visit this website, John G. SellsForFree.com. That's John G. SellsForFree.com. Or better yet, give John Grandland a call now. Tell him that Al Galdi sent you. Understand that you calling John Grandland helps out this podcast. The phone number 703 537 6747. That's 703 537 6747. John Grandland is a big Washington football fan, big Nats fan. 
But most importantly, he will sell your home and he guarantees it. John Granlund of Real Broker. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. Well, the good news is the Wizards season is not over. The 118-100 loss at the Boston Celtics in the 7-8 game on Tuesday night in the first ever Eastern Conference playing tournament did not end the Wizards season. The loss means that the Wizards will play against the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena on Thursday night at 8 with the winner getting the number 8 seed in the 2021 Eastern Conference playoffs. The Pacers, by the way, routing the Charlotte Hornets 144 117 on Tuesday night to advance in the Eastern Conference play-in tournament. The bad news, though, from Tuesday night is the Wizards, who are banged up, are going to have to play again to try to make the NBA playoffs. And in the NBA postseason, remember, we're not in the NBA playoffs, have to say postseason, the game is different. And the Wizards got exposed via these differences on Tuesday night. Now, maybe it's a one-game thing and the Wizards bounce back and they go to the NBA playoffs as the number eight seed and they take on the mighty Philadelphia 76ers in a best-of-seven first-round series. But if you are among those who worry about the Wizards maybe being more of a regular season outfit as opposed to a postseason slash playoff outfit, those worries were only heightened with what we saw on Tuesday night. The Wizards lost by 18 points at a Celtics team playing without its second best player in Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown underwent season-ending left wrist surgery on May 12th. And I know, you could say, hey, look, the Wizards are without Denny Abdia. The Wizards are without Thomas Bryant. Bradley Beal is at less than 100%. Nobody's crying for the Celtics. No, nobody should be crying for the Celtics. But the Boston Celtics, even without their second best player, whooped up on the Wizards by 18 points on Tuesday night. That's not nothing. Here's something else too to keep in mind. The Wizards lost by 18 at a Celtics team that went just 5-10 and 10 over the team's final 15 regular season games. Boston did not end the regular season well. 5-10 and 10 over the final 15 games and yet still put a whooping on the Wizards to the tune of an 18-point victory on Tuesday night. And conversely, right, the Wizards were flying at the end of their regular season. 17-6 and six over their final 23 regular season games. And what did that end up meaning in this game on Tuesday night. So the Wizards led by two at the half at 54-52, but they then allowed the Celtics to begin the third quarter on a 22-4 run. And that was basically the game. Wizards never trailed by fewer than eight points the rest of the game. The Wizards ended up losing the second half. You ready for this? 66-46. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, Stephen A. Exactly. And I don't know about you, but with this game, I kept saying to myself, okay, the Wizards are going to make a run. The Wizards are going to make this game close because every Wizards game lately has been close. Like even the losses have been these super tight, close games. You know, Wizards lose by one or by three, you know, certainly by one possession, that kind of a thing. But that didn't end up happening. The run never came in the second half. The Wizards wilted in the second half and the Wizards ended up losing by 18. You start with this in terms of why what happened happened. The Wizards had no answer for Jason Tatum. I mean, Jason Tatum had a spectacular NBA postseason performance on Tuesday night. 50 points in 40 minutes, 37 seconds as a starter. We know the Wizards are not a very good defensive team, although the Wizards have been better over these last few weeks. But still, the Wizards are fundamentally flawed in so many ways when it comes to defense, including just being slow, you know, slow to getting where they need to be. And you saw that time and again in this game on Tuesday night. Jason Tatum went 5-12 of on threes, 
9 of 20 on twos, and 17 of 17 on free throws. You know the saying of you have to be able to defend without fouling? Uh, yeah, the Wizards didn't do that on Tuesday night. Jason Tatum again, 17 of 17 on free throws for the game. He also finished with eight rebounds, four assists versus two turnovers, two blocks, and a game best plus minus rating of plus 25. How about this? Jason Tatum in a third quarter that the Wizards lost 38-26, scored 23 points, a career high for Tatum in any quarter. Jason Tatum by himself in the third quarter nearly equaled the Wizards point total as a team in the third quarter, 23 versus 26. And I don't know about you, but I had flashbacks to the last time the Wizards played an NBA postseason game. Not playoffs, can't say playoffs, got to say postseason. But Eastern Conference Semis Game 7 in the 2017 NBA playoffs. The Wizards losing that Game 7 at the Boston Celtics, 115-105. Thanks to, do you remember who? Kelly Olynyk. Kelly Olynyk went nuclear in the fourth quarter of that game, scored 14 points in the fourth quarter. It just gave me the heebie-jeebies seeing Jason Tatum do this because Tatum was a lot like Olenek. In other words, unstoppable for so much of the game. And of course, Kelly Olenek didn't score 50 in that game as Tatum did on Tuesday night. Jason Tatum is a great player. I understand that. But geez, can you do better than 50 points? Okay. Can you, can you do a better job defensively than allowing him to score 50? Like, I don't know. Can it be 33 or 35 even? Does it got to be 50? Does it have to be half a C-note? Because that's what it ended up being on Tuesday night. The Wizards could not stop Jason Tatum. Also, the Wizards allowed Tatum and Kemba Walker to go a combined 11 of 26 on three. So some more bad three-point defense by the Wizards. That's been an issue for so much of this season. Now, it's funny. The Wizards held the rest of the Celtics to four of 19 on threes. But Tatum and Walker torched the Wizards from beyond the arc. Wizards did hold the Celtics as a team to 39.6% shooting. So like there was some things you could like defensively, but of course, at the end of the day, Tatum scored 50, you lost by 18, and Tatum and Walker went a combined 11 to 26 on three. So we can't sit here and celebrate what the Wizards did defensively on Tuesday night, especially because the game really was a lot of garbage time in the fourth quarter as well. The Wizards, by the way, a horrendous three for 21 on threes in the game. This has been an issue throughout the season. The Wizards were not a good three-point shooting team, and this really came back to haunt the Wizards in this game on Tuesday night. And how about Davies Bertans? I mean, what about the season this guy ended up having? Oh, for seven on threes was Bertans on Tuesday night. And it wasn't just that. Davies Bertans had the worst plus-minus rating in the game, a minus 23 in 32 minutes, 46 seconds off the bench. The extent to which Davies Bertans has been a disappointment this season really stands out. Wizards last November re-signed Bertans to a five-year, $80 million contract of him having just shot 42.9% on threes in the 2019-2020 regular season. And I was all in on re-signing Bertans. I said, look, the Wizards didn't choose to trade away Davies. Okay, fine. You better make sure you re-sign him, though, because he's a big stretch four, stretch five even, you could argue. Shoots the three really well. Someone who profiles as a modern NBA player. The likes of which the Wizards haven't had nearly enough of in recent years. Well, the Wizards anteed up. The Wizards paid the piper. Got Bertans to resign. And what did he end up doing this season? Showing up out of shape and ultimately shooting in the regular season. 37.3% on threes. A drastic drop off from his 42.9% on threes 
in the 2019-2020 regular season. And then in the biggest game of the season on Tuesday night, Old Davies 0 for 7 on threes. And it wasn't just Bertans who struggled on threes. Bradley Beal went 1 of 6 on threes. And he's ailing, so I'm not going to sit here and crush Bradley Beal. But understand, you can't just chalk that up to the left hamstring. Bradley Beal this past regular season shot a career-worst 34.9% on threes. So this is not new, Bradley Beal struggling on threes. This is not just because he's injured, Bradley Beal struggling on threes. Bertans and Beal a combined one of 13 on threes on Tuesday night. Tatum and Walker again a combined 11 of 26 on threes on Tuesday night. Also, Russell Westbrook, he was not good. 0 of 4 on threes, 6 of 14 on twos. What's funny is he went eight of eight on free throws. So the same Westbrook who was not good on free throws for so much of the regular season actually was perfect on free throws on Tuesday night. Now, how about this with Russell Westbrook? So he did finish the game with 20 points, 14 rebounds, five assists versus four turnovers, three steals, and two blocks. But the devil be in the details because of Russell Westbrook's 14 rebounds on Tuesday night, 13 came in the first half. Of Russell Westbrook's five assists on Tuesday night, and clearly five assists is not some special total, all five came in the first half, and two of Westbrook's three steals came in the first half. Understand that Russell Westbrook ended up having zero assists and one rebound in the second half of the game, as well as Westbrook did in the first half in terms of rebounding. And the 13 rebounds were something else. The 13 rebounds were a career high for Westbrook in a half. And among those rebounds was a vicious right arm putback slam for a 54-51 Wizards lead with 25.7 seconds left in the second quarter. But as good as that was, Russell Westbrook in the second half, one rebound and zero assists versus one turnover. And again, he struggled shooting in the game. 0 of 4 on threes, 6 of 14 on twos. You know, this has been a knock on Westbrook that in the postseason, when the game slows down, Russell Westbrook isn't as good. And we saw this on Tuesday night. He wasn't as good. And it's not to say that he did nothing. Like I said, 13 first half rebounds. But in a second half in which the Wizards got outscored by 20, Westbrook, one rebound, zero assists, not good enough. Also not good enough. Rui Hachimura, five fouls, ended up playing for just 16 minutes, 37 seconds as a starter. Did have eight points on four or five shooting, but got into foul trouble and then didn't do much. You know, like I said, when he was efficient scoring, for the time that he was in the game, but very disappointing to see Rui not be able to play for more than 16-37. Haul Neto was back on Tuesday night from a two-game absence caused by a left hamstring injury, but he did very little in his 17 minutes, 22 seconds as a starter. Now, there were positives for the Wizards. I mentioned Beal. Yes, he went one to six on threes, but he also, in this his second game back from the three-game absence, caused by the left hamstring strain, went 9-19 on twos, finished with 22 points, nine rebounds, six assists versus three turnovers and two blocks in 35 minutes, 39 seconds as a starter. So, I mean, all things considered, uh, Beal really wasn't that bad. I mean, again, he's ailing right now. You can tell watching him. So, like I said, I'm not going to crush Bradley Beal. Ultimately, I thought he was more good than bad, but he's not himself. I mean, that, that's obvious. Jason Tatum scored 50. Bradley Beal scored 22, all right? And, and those two are buddy-buddy, we know. But just to give you an idea, like the Celtics superstar was dynamic. The Wizards two superstars, Beal and Westbrook, uh, at a much lesser level than dynamic. Ish Smith was very good, though, once again for the Wizards on Tuesday night. Speaking of dynamic, right? 17 points for Ish on six of eight shooting. Also had eight rebounds, three assists 
versus two turnovers and two steals in 26 minutes, 23 seconds off the bench. His rise these last few weeks really has been something else. He's been so much fun to watch here recently, too. He was at it again, especially early in the game on Tuesday night. But Ish Smith, to me, was certainly a positive. And Daniel Gafford was a positive as well. 12 points, 6-7 shooting, 5 rebounds, 2 blocks in 20 minutes, 31 seconds off the bench. But clearly, not nearly enough good for the Wizards to overcome the bad. The Wizards end up getting romped at the Celtics. And I'll tell you what, and this is going to sound really dramatic, but I actually don't think that it is. I think it's accurate. I think the outcome of the game on Thursday night, Wizards-Pacers, is going to go a long way, or at least should go a long way, toward determining the future of the Wizards. Because if the Wizards lose that game, and end up missing out on the NBA playoffs with Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, each able to opt out of his contract after next season. The Wizards have got to make a decision. You're either going all in on this Beal-Westbrook era, or you're blowing this thing up. And I'm talking about this offseason, okay? Because it doesn't do you any good to go into next season with the way things are right now. You got to either double down on what you have and try to make it even better, or you got to blow it up accumulate assets, and start a proper rebuild. And if the Wizards don't win on Thursday night, that's the dilemma that Tommy Shepard and the organization are going to have to confront this offseason. Now, do they end up picking a direction or do they end up trying to have it both ways? We'll see. I hope not. To me, you got to pick a lane and go full force in it. But if the Wizards lose on Thursday night, it's decision time about the future of this organization. Are you doubling down on Beal and Westbrook or are you blowing this thing up and starting a proper rebuild. Now, if the Wizards win on Thursday night and get the eighth seed for the Eastern Conference playoffs, well, then the offseason doesn't start just yet, and we see what happens against the Philadelphia 76ers. But this was a shame that the Wizards lost, especially lost this way on Tuesday night, because I think the Wizards against the Brooklyn Nets in the first round of the NBA playoffs would have been competitive. I do. I'm less confident in the kind of series we'll see from the Wizards against the Sixers in the first round, should the Wizards even end up making it to the first round. Very disappointing night for the Wizards on Tuesday night. There's no way around that. If only one of the great supporters of this podcast, Dr. George Verghese, could have spoken to the Wizards. He would have gotten them to actually make a three or two. Uh, Dr. George Verghese is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions including skin cancer. And if you or someone you know is dealing with skin cancer, listen closely. Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game changer. Superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. Having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option. And Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit MidAtlanticSkin.com. That's MidAtlanticSkin.com. 
Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. One of the themes in the early days of this podcast, all the way back in March, yes, the good old days, March, was Ron Rivera's Baptism of Fire. The Baptism of Fire in The Godfather was the scenes late in the movie of Michael Corleone exacting his revenge and eliminating the enemies of the Corleone family. Mo Green, Philip Tataglia, Emilio Barzini, etc. It's also late in The Godfather that the Corleone family kills two of its own for being traitors, Connie Corleone's husband Carlo and Salvatore Tessio. Very sad scene when old Sally is about to get whacked. And what I was pointing out back in March was how Ron Rivera, the head coach in the Washington football team's coach-centric approach, the godfather, the Don of the mafia, that is the Washington football team, Don Ron, was like Michael Corleone in the baptism of fire toward the end of the movie, The Godfather, in taking out those who Ron wanted out of the way, right? A number of longtime employees for Washington ousted over the last two off seasons. Well, that very much has taken place with the roster as well. And we now have another instance of this. Right tackle Morgan Moses. In a stunning development on Tuesday, we had multiple reports that Washington has given Moses permission to seek a trade, including NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com tweeting that Washington is, quote, likely moving on, end quote, from Moses. So make no mistake, Moses' time as Washington's starting right tackle is done. You don't reach a point like this and then all of a sudden decide not to move on. Washington is moving on, and the question is why? Moses isn't that old. The 2021 season will be just his age 30 season. Moses isn't that expensive. He, for the 2021 season, has a base salary of $7.5 million, which is pretty reasonable. And Washington, remember, has plenty of salary cap space. Moses has been incredibly durable. Yes, he gets banged up a bunch. But the bottom line is that Moses, during his tenure as Washington's starting right tackle, has never missed a game. He, over his six seasons, as Washington starting right tackle, 2015 through 2020, has started all 96 of Washington's regular season games and both of the team's playoff games. That is an insane run of posting. And Moses is coming off maybe the best season of his career. Moses in the 2020 regular season ranked sixth out of 40 qualified right tackles in overall grade for pro football focus at 80.6, which was a career best single season overall PFF grade for Moses. He, per PFF, had a run blocking grade of 85.9, had a pass blocking grade of 70.8. Like, quantifiably, Morgan Moses had the best season of his career last season. And remember the Morgan Moses penalty problem? He seems to have fixed that. The glitch, apparently, has been fixed. We fixed the glitch. Yes, thank you. I love that line from Office Space. The glitch, apparently, has been fixed. Moses, in the 2020 regular season, committed six accepted penalties and seven total penalties. Now, that's not some outstanding total, I'll grant you that. But remember, Moses had a terrible penalty problem at one point. Moses in the 2018 season committed an NFL worst 14 accepted penalties and an NFL worst 16 total penalties. Even in the 2019 season, Moses, nine accepted penalties, 11 total penalties. Again, those totals for this past season down to six accepted penalties and seven total penalties. So why is Ron Rivera doing this? Why 
is Ron parting ways with Morgan Moses? Well, a few things to be thinking about here. First of all, I do think that it's possible that something happened here. This situation kind of reeks of something having happened here. And the something that I think is possible is that Moses asked for a contract extension. The 2021 season will be the penultimate season of a five-year contract extension that Washington signed Moses to in April 2017. I could see Moses having asked for a contract extension to try to guard against being cut after this coming season, being told no, and now Ron is moving on. Remember, Ron doesn't react favorably to ultimatums or to being told by a player that he needs to be extended. Ron did not react favorably to Trent Williams when he did this. Ron did not react favorably to Quentin Dunbar when he did this. In fact, one of my all-time favorite lines from Don Ron came off Dunbar having asked for a contract extension. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Yes, exactly. Ron right there. Classic. I love that. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. (laughs) Just outstanding. That is an old-timer from Don Ron. But I wouldn't be shocked if Moses pulled a Trent or a Dunbar and, shall we say, strongly requested a contract extension. Remember, Moses was a Trent guy. Moses very early in the Trent holdout in 2019 publicly backed Trent's training staff concerns. Moses, after minicamp practice on June 5th, 2019, validated Trent's training staff concerns. Quote, obviously, it's about time somebody like that stands up. It's not just a situation here. It happens throughout the league. To have one of our peers like Trent, a very valued guy on the field and off the field, to stand up like that, it means a lot to not just us as players, but to the NFL as well. Obviously, his scare is one that you never want to have, but at the end of the day, he's got to take care of himself, end quote. I remember those comments from Morgan Moses. Those comments stood out of like, whoa, look at Morgan Moses here, standing up for Trent as he holds out with the team. Now, look, it doesn't have to be that something happened with Moses to where Ron has decided to move on for Moses. I mean, consider the timing of these reports on Tuesday. Tuesday came just three days after Saturday a day on which two notable things transpired with Washington. One, the team concluded its 2021 rookie minicamp, which included second-round rookie offensive tackle Samuel Cosme. And two, the team officially announced the signing of unrestricted free agent left tackle Charles Leno Jr. Maybe Cosme looked good enough at rookie minicamp to where Ron already is convinced that Cosme can, at the very least, be Washington's starting right tackle this coming season. And now that Washington has Leno, in addition to Cornelius Lucas, Ron feels like left tackle is taken care of. Keep in mind, Lucas can play right tackle. Did so for the Chicago Bears in 2019. Lucas had a nice 2019 season for the Bears. We all know that Lucas had a nice 2020 season for Washington as a left tackle. But Cornelius Lucas in 2019 went from someone not necessarily expected to even make the Bears season opening 53-man roster to becoming a solid depth piece. He played in all 16 games for the Bears that season with eight starts, including starting each of the Bears' final five games at right tackle. And Lucas, over those five games, for Pro Football Focus, registered an overall grade of 78.1. And Lucas, zero penalties the entire 2019 season. So maybe Ron just now feels like Moses is expendable. It's like, look, we have Cosme, and we have Leno, and we have Lucas, and we're good to go when it comes to our two offensive tackle spots. But again, Moses doesn't cost that much. Moses has been remarkably durable 
And like, how can Ron be that sure about Cosby at this point? Like, maybe Ron loved what he saw from Samuel Cosby at the rookie minicamp, but it was just a rookie minicamp. It was a two-day rookie minicamp at which you had just a handful of players. Like, really, what could Cosby have done to floor Ron to where now all of a sudden he's good to be without Morgan Moses? So to me, it does feel like there may well be more to this than we know. We'll see. You know, the Morgan Moses story is a good one. Washington took Moses in the third round of the 2014 NFL draft out of Virginia. Moses, in his 2014 rookie season, played in just eight games with one start, was put on the team's reserve slash injured list in December 2014 due to a Liz Frank injury. Washington then took, right, a supposed right tackle in Brandon Sheriff. I said Brandon Sheriff. Brandon Sheriff. Yes, thank you, Commissioner Roger Goodell. Brandon Sheriff with the number five pick in the 2015 draft. But Sheriff, of course, moved from right tackle to right guard shortly after the start of Washington's 2015 training camp. And a big reason for that was the rise of Moses, who ended up being Washington's starting right tackle for the next six seasons, 2015 through 2020, and never missing a game. But this is a new day. And Ron Rivera is doing things his way and putting his stamp on the Washington football team. And personally, I don't have a problem with that. Ron is the head coach in the coach-centric approach. He is Don Ron. He needs to be allowed to implement his vision. We'll see if that vision ends up being correct, but he is off to a good start. But consider now the incredible purge of Washington's roster since Ron became head coach. You know, he only became head coach less than 17 months ago. January 2020. It's not like Ron has been on the job for a bunch of years now. And yet the purge of Washington's roster since Ron took over really is something else. Morgan Moses now is on the verge of joining a list of discarded Washington players during Ron's tenure. That includes Trent Williams, Dwayne Haskins, Alex Smith, Colt McCoy, Jordan Reed, Chris Thompson, Adrian Peterson, Darius Geis, Paul Richardson, Ryan Kerrigan, Josh Norman, Quinton Dunbar, Monte Nicholson, Nick Sunberg, on and on we can go. And those are just the players, right? Bunch of football operations people have been ousted since Ron took over. Think Eric Schaefer. Think Kyle Smith. Think, you know, Paul Kelly. You know, I don't know that Washington has ever had a house cleaning this drastic. What has taken place in, again, the less than 17 months that Ron Rivera has presided as the head coach in the coach-centric approach. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So Washington is going to have a new starting right tackle for the 2021 season and may well have a new starting left tackle for the 2021 season with Charles Leno Jr. having been signed. And so with this theme of change, or at least potential change, for Washington at both tackle spots. We continue the conversation now with someone who can give us an in-depth look at Leno. So the Washington football team on Saturday officially announced the signing of unrestricted free agent offensive tackle Charles Leno Jr. Here to help us get a better idea of what Washington now has in Leno is Will DeWitt, founder and host of the Chicago Audible, which is a major podcast that covers the Chicago Bears. Will, thanks a lot for coming on, man. How are you? I'm doing great, Al. Thank you so much for bringing me on. Glad to come here. I uh, give you a little bit of insight on Charles Leno Jr., someone I've had the privilege of you know, watching here over the past, what, five, six seasons here in Chicago. 
Uh, I know he's moving on over to your team, and I'm glad to you know be here to tell you just a little bit more about him. Yeah, well, we want to learn more about him. So what would you say that Washington has in Charles Leno Jr.? Is he a guy who could still play well? Is he someone who's fading and no longer a true starting left tackle in the NFL? What's the truth on Leno? That's a really good question. I, I think he's someone that he's going to be able to step in. Uh, and I say this without any disrespect. I think Washington is getting a average starting left tackle in this league. Uh, he's someone who uh, he's going to be able to do the job well. Uh, he's very serviceable. Uh, like most offensive linemen, if you want to nitpick, I'm sure you can always find ways to do so. And unfortunately here in Chicago, I would say over the past two seasons, uh, we've seen a little bit of regression. Um, but I don't think it's too much. I think what really has been kind of driving Bears fans just a little bit nuts over the past couple of seasons with Charles is uh, a little bit of dip in play, but his pay has continued to go up. Uh, he's gotten a good contract here a few years ago, uh, and that he just really hasn't lived up to it. Uh, that's why we had to let him go for like a cap casualty type of reason. But in Washington, you're getting someone who can start a left tackle, actually do the job pretty well. Uh, he's not going to be a top-tier tackle in this league. He's going to give up pressures. You're going to see him whiff uh, on a block here or there. But I, I still feel like outside of a select few in the league, you're going to see that with most people playing left tackle in this in this league. He obviously isn't that old. He's been exceptionally durable, and I know every indication is that he's a good guy. So basically the Bears released him because of the money and just the declining play in recent seasons? Pretty much. We've been strapped uh, against the cap this offseason, uh, which has uh, kind of forced us to be very, uh, I would say, cautious uh, with our free agency spending uh, as well. And I think there was a point when we were drafting, we didn't even have money to sign our draft picks yet. So we needed to find it somewhere. Uh, there's only a couple of options right now in Chicago. One of them happened uh, about a month or so ago, which was Kyle Fuller, our starting cornerback. Uh, he was the first one to be a casualty. And then here in Chicago, really the only other option besides Charles Leno Jr. Uh, was tight end Jimmy Graham. Uh, so I believe the Bears figured it's easier to replace Charles, as we did in the draft with Evan Jenkins, uh, than it would be to replace a Jimmy Graham, someone who, even though he's aging and even though he's declining a bit as well, uh, what we saw in Chicago last year was a true red zone threat, and it's kind of hard to pass up someone who can catch those 50-50 balls in the end zone. So, uh, yeah, that's really it. Charles, great guy. Uh, I know he's uh, he's gotten married over the past couple of years. Uh, he's super active in the community, uh, really big into charitable giving and just being involved, and that's something that I've always appreciated of him through his time in Chicago. And I, like I said, I was honored to watch him play because he was someone that was a seventh-round draft pick that I've seen develop. Uh, over the time and watching that development was really exciting for a few years. And then again, most players, most people really in the real life too, right? You hit a plateau moment. Uh, I think we've seen that. I think you'll benefit from a change of scenery. Uh, maybe not having Mitch Trubisky back there or Nick Foles taking all those sacks that will help him out as well. And I know last year he struggled early on, um, but he did get a lot stronger as the season went on. And he's someone that did have, was playing his best football towards the end of last season. Yeah, I did want to ask you about Leno's 2020, and you just described some of it there, but what went into that? Why did he struggle early on? Why was he better as the season went on? Good question. I think the Bears offensive line was really much in flux most of the season. Last year, uh, we had our starting left guard, uh, James Daniel, go down to injury. Uh, so we had to do a lot of reshuffling of that offensive line. And uh, due to another injury as well up front, just people are moving around. And as you know, playing 
offensive line. You need that chemistry. You need to be able to play next to the guy, uh, the guy next to you uh, for some time to build that trust, that camaraderie, and understanding how you're going to be able to handle uh, just different stunts and different fronts that defense are throwing your way. Uh, so I believe early on you saw Charles struggling. A, I think COVID and just most offensive linemen, or heck, most players in the league struggled early on uh, to kind of get that groove going. Uh, but once the Bears kind of, I think it was around our bye week, we uh, kind of got ourselves a good starting five put together uh, that was able to stay consistent from week to week. Uh, and that's when we started to uh, see his play elevate a bit. Uh, and then with Mitch coming back into the lineup too, uh, just having a more mobile quarterback than maybe like a Nick Foles is kind of a statue in the pocket helps. And what I saw Charles struggle with early on, which has always been kind of his uh, issue, is sometimes the speed. Uh, so the speed rushers, he'll get, uh, he'll get beaten around the edge. Uh, powerful guys, not so much. I, you don't usually see Charles get knocked back uh, too often. Uh, so usually if you're looking for what to watch for with Charles, I'd say speed rushers may be the ones that will give him the most fits. Talking Charles Leno Jr. with Will DeWitt. He is the founder and host of the Chicago Audible podcast. So this may sound funny to you as a Bears fan. Then again, maybe not. We'll see. The guy who ended up being Washington's best left tackle last season was Cornelius Lucas. And he was not necessarily brought here to be the starting left tackle, more like a swing tackle, but he ended up becoming the starting left tackle, did a good job as the season went on. I know he played for the Bears in 2019. Every indication was that he had a good season for the Bears in 2019. But if I say to you, okay, Lucas or Leno, who's the better option at left tackle and Washington does have other options. But is it ridiculous to suggest that actually Cornelius Lucas might be a better option for Washington at left tackle than Leno? I would trust you since you watched him more than I did last year in Lucas. But no, Lucas is very serviceable uh, throughout his time here in Chicago. You know, very versatile offensive lineman. Uh, But we just had other options uh, for us up front. Uh, So he's someone that I'm surprised. I didn't even know he started for you guys up front and left tackle and he played well. Uh, so that's news to me, um, but that is someone where I wouldn't be surprised to hear that, as you just said. Uh, so if you guys are having like a camp battle uh, at your hands or something of that nature, uh, that'd be interesting uh, for me I, as a Bears fan. Uh, I would like to tap into that uh, myself just to kind of keep tabs, see how that's kind of shaking out. But uh, I say at the end of the day, Charles would be your guy unless Lucas is developing, which players do that uh, at any juncture of their career. Uh, so I wouldn't be... Uh, Surprise, though, if Lucas can continue his development and end up being a better option. So I did want to ask you about, of course, the big move that the Bears made this offseason, the trade-up in the 2021 draft to go from number 20 to number 11 to take Justin Fields. There was a lot of talk in Washington of Washington potentially doing that. Obviously did not. Washington had the number 19 pick in the first round. Bears had the 20th pick. Made the trade up to take Fields at 11. And, you know, the price that was paid really wasn't that unreasonable. I mean, it obviously was significant, but this wasn't one of these insane deals where the Bears had to give up, you know, three ones and two twos and that sort of a thing. What is the overall perception of the trade and the move up in Chicago? I would think Bears fans are really excited about what Justin Fields can be. We are ecstatic. Uh, Bears fans, we're just oozing anything that the Bears media can tell us about Justin Fields, uh, showing him in a Bears jersey, uh, watching him do practice throws, you know, against air. It's amazing for us. Uh, we're excited to see uh, what this kid can turn out to be uh, here in Chicago. Uh, I'm sure you know we've had a pretty poor run of quarterbacks throughout pretty much all of franchise history. Uh, and this kid has everything, uh, whether it be leadership, charisma, 
the on-field tools, uh, his speed, his athleticism, the arm power, the accuracy. He has everything that you would hope and want out of a potential franchise guy. So uh, we're excited. Uh, personally, who cares about the trade? I'm okay with giving up another one uh, to go ahead and get this guy. And it was one of those when we were doing, we do like live reaction podcasts and we're just sitting here, my co-host and I, waiting for uh, the Bears to be on the clock. And we just kept watching Justin Fields just slip a little bit more, a little bit more. And we're like, hey, maybe we'll trade up. I didn't think the Bears had the gumption to do it. And we're just, and I was about to leave the room to go get a snack. And next thing you know, I see through my Twitter feed, Bears have traded up to run the clock. And, like, my heart was racing. And it's still one where I'm learning everything I can about Justin. Uh, watching the QB1 special that he was on Netflix – uh, just learning more about him as a person. And in Chicago, I think we're just really ready for a franchise guy, and we're just hoping and praying that Justin can uh, end up being the person and player uh, that we expect him uh, to become. Uh, and, you know, now the battle uh, that we're looking at is, do you start Andy Dalton and let Justin sit? Do you start Justin week one if he's the better option? And I'm kind of torn personally, too, because I don't want to rush the kid. I don't want to put him under the fire but also the more I look into him, I think he thrives in that environment. Uh, so I may not be all too opposed to it uh, once they get through training camp. It's funny. Washington ended up signing Ryan Fitzpatrick. A name, though, that did come up was Mitchell Trubisky, which was not a very popular name. And I'm certainly glad Washington went with Fitzpatrick and not Trubisky. But, you know, we talk about trading up to take quarterbacks. The Bears obviously did that to take Trubisky, did not work out. Why ultimately did the Mitchell Trubisky experience in Chicago not work out? Now, that's a loaded question, Al, but I'm going to try my best to answer it. So with Mitchell Trubisky, he's someone who, great person. Uh, so I want to make sure I preface that with uh, before I kind of dive in here. A really good person, really good teammate. Uh, I don't think he's a great leader. Uh, he doesn't command an offense. I don't think he commands his teammates. I don't think he inspires uh, a football team as well. Uh, and I think those are very important elements of any quarterback uh, and then when you're just looking at the on-field tools, uh, his processing is a little slow. That never really developed. Uh, and then I just don't believe he ever really got the trust of the coaching staff uh, as well, just kind of due to some of those limitations. Uh, and he's someone that I think he gets so kind of deep into his own work, uh, never really takes a step back, and he doesn't get himself that mental break. And I think he's overworking himself a bit and putting a lot of extra pressure on himself that – Unfortunately, I think he crumbles under sometimes, too. So uh, I just don't think he was the right guy. Uh, you look at Watson, you look at Mahomes, and some of those intangibles that you can't coach that they bring to the table. And uh, I understand what Ryan Pace here in Chicago did with Mitch. You know, coming out of North Carolina, he was a lot of people's number one quarterback coming out, just looking at the potential. And I just don't think he ever lived up to the potential and unfortunately wasn't able to kind of tap into it. Excellent. Well, Will, great perspective on Charles Leno Jr. and some of the other items we raised here. Really appreciate your time. All the best and continued success with the Chicago Audible podcast, man. Hey, thank you so much, Al. Anytime you need me on, just let me know. Capitals-Bruins Game 3 is on Wednesday evening, a 6.30 start as the series moves to Boston even at 1. Caps winning Game 1, 3-2 in overtime at Capital One Arena on Saturday night. Caps losing Game 2, 4-3 in overtime at Capital One Arena on Monday night. Of course, the biggest issue for the Caps remains, who's in, who's out? Head coach Peter Laviolette on Tuesday morning saying, 
that Evgeny Kuznetsov and goaltender Ilya Samsonov were to travel with the team to Boston. Uh, Laviolette also called Lars Eller and goaltender Vitek Vanacek day-to-day. So game three may well be another Craig Anderson production. We just do not know where things truly are at with Kuznetsov and Samsonov with the COVID-19 protocols. Each guy is off the COVID-19 list for the league, so that's obviously good news, but that doesn't mean that either guy is going to be good to go on Wednesday evening. When it comes to Vanacek, he, of course, did not play in Game 2 due to a lower body injury that was suffered in the first period of Game 1, and Lars Eller left Game 2 in the second period with a lower body injury and did not return, and the Eller injury really does hurt because Eller's line with Connor Sheary and Michael Roffel had been checking the Bruins' top line, the perfection line, that is David Pasternak, Patrice Bergeron, and Brad Marchand. And remember, the Caps in Game 2 got demolished in the puck possession battle. Caps, per natural stat trick, had 49 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins' 70, including just seven high-danger 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins' 17. The discrepancy really was in the third period, during which the Caps, per natural stat trick, had 14 five-on-five shot attempts to the Bruins' 30. And the perfection line was a big part of all this. Pasternak, Bergeron, and Marchand over 10 minutes, 15 seconds on the ice together in five-on-five play in Game 2 had a shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick of 68.75, 22 shot attempts for, 10 shot attempts against. Bergeron and Marchand each had a goal. Eller leaving the game damaged the Capitals from a defensive standpoint, because it jumbled up the lines, and all of a sudden, the line that Laviolette had been deploying to keep the perfection line in check, that line was no more, because Eller was out of the game. So if, in fact, Eller can't play in Game 3, that really hurts the Caps, and it hurts the Caps in multiple ways, because you also have this, right? If Kuznetsov remains out, you're now down two of your top three centers, right? You have Nicholas Backstrom, but no Kuznetsov and no Eller, if, in fact, both guys remain out for game three. TJ Oshie, remember, has been having to play center. TJ Oshie is a right winger who's been thrust into playing center way too often this season. And, you know, Oshie does what he can, but TJ Oshie is getting destroyed on faceoff so far in this series. TJ Oshie is two and 17 on faceoffs over the first two games in this series. And I know faceoffs aren't everything. If you know hockey analytics, you know that faceoffs can be overvalued. But still, 2-17? and 17? Can we do better than 2-17 and 17 over the first two games of a Stanley Cup playoff series? But that's the predicament the Capitals are in. Because again, Oshie, a winger, is being made to play center once again this season. Now, the Caps have added an option at center. Not sure how likely this is, but you can't dismiss it. Connor McMichael. And if he ends up playing, this is actually going to be really exciting. So Connor McMichael is a part of what's called the Capitals' Black Aces. The Caps on Tuesday morning recalled four players from AHL affiliate Hershey. Forwards Connor McMichael and Brett Leeson and defenseman Alexander Alexeyev and Paul Ledoux. These four players constitute the Caps' Black Aces. Black Aces is a very cool nickname for an NHL team's extra players added for a playoff run after those players' seasons in the minors or elsewhere, like, say, the KHL, are over. Three of these four guys are highly touted Capitals prospects. Alexeyev was taken by the Caps with the number 31 overall pick 
in the first round of the 2018 draft. McMichael was taken by the Caps with the number 25 overall pick in the first round of the 2019 draft, and Leeson was taken by the Caps in the second round of the 2019 NHL draft. But the guy to be paying attention to here is McMichael because he is a center, in addition to being one of the Caps' more highly regarded prospects. But if, in fact, you're going to be without both Kuznetsov and Eller for Game 3, might this be a spot in which you use Connor McMichael? You know, Connor McMichael had a very good season for the Hershey Bears in the 2020-2021 regular season. McMichael led the Bears with 13 goals, led the Bears with 27 points. So something to be thinking about, a black ace perhaps rising to the occasion for the Capitals Wednesday night at the Boston Bruins. Also, the Caps defensemen need to be better. You know, you go back to some of the goals that were scored against the Caps in the 4-3 overtime loss to the Bruins at Capital One Arena on Monday night. So the game-winning goal, Craig Anderson getting beat on a one-timer from Brad Marchand from the right circle on an even-strength goal just 39 seconds into overtime. That sequence started thanks to a brutal giveaway by defenseman Brendan Dillon, whose attempt to send the puck down the right boards was intercepted by David Krejci near the right point. How about the Bruins' second goal in Game 2? The Patrice Bergeron even-strength goal, 9-21 into the first period for a 2-1 Bruins lead. Craig Anderson getting beat high and glove side on a slot shot on which Anderson wasn't screened. That was a disappointing moment, I thought, for Craig Anderson. But the Bruins' possession came off an attempted defensive zone clear by defenseman Dmitry Orloff being deflected back into the Caps defensive zone. You know, Orloff and John Carlson have not had a good series so far, defensively speaking. Orloff and Carlson, over the first two games of this series, a combined 32 minutes, 49 seconds on the ice together in five-on-five situations. The shot attempt percentage for Orloff and Carlson in that span, just 38.46. That's it. 30 shot attempts for, 48 shot attempts against. The Capitals defense pair of Orloff and Carlson has gotten shelled in the puck possession game over the first two games of this series. You also had Carlson committing a penalty in game two, just like you had in game one, three of the Caps' four penalties in that game by defensemen. Carlson committed a delayed game puck over glass penalty in the first period. Justin Schultz committed a tripping penalty in the first period. Orloff committed a high-sticking penalty in the second period. Speaking of penalties, how will Game 3 be officiated on Wednesday night? So many penalties were called in the Caps' Game 2 overtime loss to the Bruins on Monday night. 14 total minors in the game. Caps committed six minors. Bruins committed eight minors. It really was a shame that the Caps couldn't capitalize more on the Bruins committing eight minors. Caps did go one of four on the power play, two of two on the penalty kill. But of course, the Caps themselves being called for six minors played a role in the Caps only getting four power plays on eight Bruins minors. Tom Wilson getting called for that embellishment minor, 13-31 into the second period, was criminal. The official also called an interference minor on Bruins defenseman Connor Clifton in that spot. But that embellishment minor on Wilson was an outrage. We didn't talk about this on Tuesday's installment of the podcast. But that that was a joke. You know, Tom Wilson, there's definitely a target on his back given his reputation, but that doesn't mean that you should just be calling things on him that don't happen. He did not embellish in that spot, and yet he got called for that penalty. You know, special teams could end up deciding this series. It's been a very close series so far. I expect that to continue. I thought this would be the case going into the series, but you've had back-to-back overtime games to get this series going. Both the Capitals and Bruins top 10 in the NHL 
during the regular season in both power play efficiency and penalty kill efficiency. The Capitals in power play efficiency third in the NHL. Bruins were ninth. The Capitals in penalty kill efficiency fifth in the NHL. The Bruins were second. So which strength prevails? Capitals special teams versus Bruins special teams could end up deciding a series that so far has been about as close as a series can be. But for the Capitals on Wednesday night, it all starts with being better in the puck possession battle. Caps cannot get crushed in five-on-five play the way the Caps got crushed, especially in the third period in the overtime loss on Monday night, especially if Craig Anderson is back in that. He can only do so much, okay? Age 39 season, he's turning 40 on Friday. Give the guy a chance, okay? Don't make it so that Craig Anderson has to stop 48 shots on goal on Wednesday night. Can we do a better job than having Craig Anderson have to face 48 shots on goal? That would be nice. Of course, it would be even better if Vanacek and or Samsonov is available on Wednesday night. But at this point, I'm not counting on either. The injury slash absence gods have not been on the capital side for weeks now. And it doesn't feel like that's changing, especially with this injury for Lars Eller in game two. And him being able to play in game three would be great. But I don't see how anyone can count on that right now. Another loss for the Nationals on Tuesday night. 6-3 the final at the Chicago Cubs in game two of a four-game series. Nats now 16-22 and on the season, including 4-10 and since the 12-12 and start. And it's not like the 12-12 and start was sparkling, but since that 12-12 and start, which did end with a four-game winning streak, season best for the Nats, the Nats have lost 10 of the 14 games that the team has played. Another underwhelming performance for the Nationals offensively on Tuesday night. Nats go 2-12 with runners in scoring position. Have nine hits, but draw just two walks. And ultimately score just three runs. So consider this now. The Nats have scored three runs or less in 11 of the team's last 15 games. That's a hard way to make a living, man. Scoring three runs or less on the regular. Three runs or less by the Nats in 11 of the team's last 15 games. It was a rough game for Kyle Schwarber, starting left fielder, number four batter, and he's been so much better lately. I've been chronicling this, but Schwarby on Tuesday night, not so good. 0 for 4 with a walk and two strikeouts, and he left five men on base. He did have a two out four pitch walk in the top of the first, but Schwarber grounding out with runners on first and second and two outs to end the Nats two-run fifth, a two-run fifth that could have been much bigger. Uh Striking out with runners on first and second and one out and the top of the seven. Starling Castro. So he's been struggling big time. He was back in there as a starting third baseman, number five batter on Tuesday night. He had a leadoff homer in the top of the sixth inning. So finally, Starling Castro, who had gone hitless for it felt like forever, gave you a hit. In fact, a home run. And that's not something he does with any kind of frequency. Starling Castro's a guy who, you know, can hit 310, but he'll slug 311. You know, that sort of a thing. Like all he does is hit singles. Well, he had a homer on Tuesday night. But he also ended up leaving six men on base. The leadoff homer came in the top of the six. Castro, though, grounded out with runners on first and second and two outs in the top of the seventh. Victor Robles had a rough night. Starting center fielder, number nine batter, again, hitting behind the pitcher. 0 for 3 with just a two-out hit by pitch in the top of the eighth. Struck out as well. Jan Gomes, who's been good offensively this season, not a good game on Tuesday night. Starting catcher, number seven batter, 0 for 3. Had a leadoff hit by pitch in that Nationals two-run fifth inning. Although, let me give Gomes credit for this. Two for two on runners trying to steal. Jan Gomes now on the season, eight for 18 on runners trying to steal. That is terrific. Jan Gomes doing a really nice job 
when it comes to that. Uh, Josh Harrison, starting second baseman, number six batter, one for four, had a single in the top of the six. Trey Turner, starting shortstop, number one batter, one for five, had an RBI single, a two-out first pitch RBI single in the Nats two-run fifth inning. So that was good. But, you know, beyond that, not much happening for Trey offensively. And Trey had a rough game in the field, including committing a throwing error after the Cubs scored their two runs in the bottom of the six and being unable to make several plays on infield singles. Now, there were some offensive bright spots. Juan Soto starting right fielder, number two batter. He did go two for five with a double and a single. Nice to see Juan finally have an extra base hit here. Uh, two out single in the Nats two run fifth, one out double in the top of the seventh. He still needs to get back to elevating balls more. The power numbers remain underwhelming, but he did have a double on Tuesday night to go with a single, so that was good. Ryan Zimmerman, not Josh Bell, was the starting first baseman and number three batter. Zim went two for four with two singles, a walk, and an RBI two out single in the top of the first two out RBI single in the Nats two run fifth and a one out five pitch walk in the top of the seventh. And I mentioned Bell, he came off the bench to pinch hit and had a pinch hit single, pinch two out first pitch single in the top of the eighth inning, but ultimately not enough offensively speaking. And again, I think that stat I made mention of says it all three runs or less for an 11th time in 15 games for the Nationals. And I think what's especially concerning is this. So no doubt Josh Bell has got to be better and has a ways to go until he's better. And no doubt Juan Soto has got to hit for more power. But everyone else essentially is doing as everyone else is supposed to be doing. Juan Soto isn't where he needs to be. And I think he will get there. But otherwise, Trey Turner's been very good. He's doing Trey Turner kind of things. Kyle Schwarber largely has gotten on track. He's now doing Kyle Schwarber kind of things. Jan Gomes has been good, doing Jan Gomes-like things. Starling Castro has been Starling Castro, doing Starling Castro-like things. Josh Harrison was very good. You could argue he's overachieved. You know, it's not like you have a bunch of people who have these great track records and they're not living up to those track records. Save for Bell and Soto, everyone's kind of doing what they're supposed to be doing. And yet the Nats still are scoring three runs or less with such a high frequency. That, to me, is what is especially frightening. After Bell and Soto, you're not really waiting on anyone else. And, you know, with Soto, I mean, it's not like he's been awful this year. It's just that he's not hitting for power like we know he can. But that, to me, is a real issue, is that even if the Nats get Bell and Soto to where those guys can be, I'm not sure that the offense ends up being that much better at that point. And and that's the thing. It may well not be that the Nats are slumping or the Nats are off to a bad start. It's just that this is who the Nats are offensively in the 2021 season. Patrick Corbin was an ad starting pitcher on Tuesday night. Had a weird game. So he, to me, got victimized by what we like to call the variance of the batted ball. Patrick Corbin got, as I like to say, babipped on Tuesday night. BABIP stands for batting average on balls in play. Corbin got babipped on Tuesday night. His final line was three runs in five innings. He gave up eight hits, but all eight of those hits were singles. He only issued two walks, did only have four strikeouts. So he pitched to a lot of contact. That's true. Over 87 pitches, 54 strikes versus 33 balls. But Corbin, to me, deserved a better fate than this. If you look at some of the specifics, so first of all, Corbin, in each of the first two innings, gave up a one-out single, but then induced a double play for the second and third outs. Corbin then gave up two runs in the bottom of the third. Leadoff infield single by David Bodie on a ball that bounced weirdly from foul territory into fair territory and at the third baseman, Starling Castro. So that was a weird single. Then came another infield single, one by Nico Horner, on which shortstop Trey Turner made a nice sliding backhanded stab 
but then couldn't successfully make the transfer of the baseball from his glove to his throwing hand. Then came a one-out, two-run single by Wilson Contreras. Now, that was a legit single, but it was on that single that the right fielder, Juan Soto, dropped the baseball before he could make a throw. So I'm not saying that Soto was the reason that the two runs scored. I'm not sure uh, that the run wouldn't have scored otherwise. Uh, Soto was not given an error, but that was some sloppy defense uh, in that spot. Corbin did later issue a two-out full count walk of Chris Bryant in that inning. But two infield singles, you know, a two-run single on which the right fielder drops the baseball before the throw can be made. Like, to me, it's not like Corbin was getting shelled in that inning. Uh, He gave up a run Corbin did in the bottom of the fifth. First pitch leadoff single by Nico Horner. One-out single by Wilson Contreras. And then an RBI infield single by Chris Bryant, despite him having been down in the count at one point. One, two. So I didn't think Corbin was that bad. He wasn't great. You certainly can't say that. Three runs in five innings. But this was not one of these starts where you say, oh, here we go again. Patrick Corbin is struggling. It is true, though. He does remain in this kind of bizarre state where sometimes he's great like he was in his previous outing. The 5-1 win over the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park last Thursday afternoon. One run in seven innings, nine strikeouts. Sometimes he's awful like he was in each of those first two starts of his 2021 season. So it's been for Corbin in a lot of ways like it's been for the Nationals so far this season. Stop and start, you know, two steps forward, three steps back, that kind of a thing. Bottom line, Patrick Corbin now, eight starts on the season. He does have an ERA of 6'10". And a lot of that has to do, yes, with those first two starts. But like, you know, you big picture it. This is not where you want to be with Patrick Corbin. Eight starts into a season, an ERA of 6'10". His whip is not good either, uh, 145 on the year. Another thing with the Nationals is this. The bullpen continues to come back down to earth. Four Nationals relievers combined to allow three runs in three innings on Tuesday night. Will Harris in the bottom of the six gave up two runs and recorded just two outs. He issued a leadoff four-pitch walk of Matt Duffy, then gave up a one-out two-run homer to David Bodie. And Harris later gave up a two-out first-pitch single to the Cubs reliever, Keegan Thompson. You know, Will Harris still has had a bizarre go of it here because he's had this medical issue that the Nats still don't have a full grasp on, but he's not pitched well so far this season. Harris now has given up four runs in five into third innings on the season. Now, Tanner Rainey did come in to retire the only batter he faced to end the bottom of the sixth. That was good. Austin Voth tossed a score of the seventh. That was good. But Wander Suero, bottom of the eighth inning, giving up a leadoff homer to Ian Happ and then giving up a one-out single to Nico Horner on a one-two pitch. So some more runs given up by the bullpen, and this has kind of become a trend here lately. You know, you go back to the National 7-3 loss at the Cubs on Monday night. Four Nats relievers in that game combining to allow two runs, one earned in two and two-thirds innings. You had the loss on Saturday night at the Arizona Diamondbacks, 11-4 the final. Uh, Four Nats relievers in that game combining to allow three runs in four innings. Suero giving up a two-out solo homer to David Peralta in the bottom of the sixth. Both giving up a two-out two-run homer to Eduardo Escobar in the bottom of the eighth. Friday night, even that game, that 17-2 win at the Diamondbacks. You had Will Harris in that game giving up a run in the bottom of the sixth inning. And my point here isn't to crush the bullpen because overall to me, it's been much more of a positive than a negative. But the point is the bullpen wasn't going to continue to pitch at this A-plus level. You know, like runs are going to be given up by a bullpen over the course of a season. And we're seeing that here now lately. And that highlights even more the Nationals offense struggling. Like that makes it even more difficult to keep having to win games in which you're scoring three runs or less as it's been one more time in 11 of the last 15 games now for the Nats. Game three at the Cubs Wednesday night at 740. Max Scherzer versus Jake Arrieta. Now Arrieta is not the pitcher 
he used to be. He's got an ERA of 410 over seven starts on the season. Scherzer, of course, is the pitcher we know him to be. Uh, he's been outstanding so far this season. Coming off a short outing, it was Max who started that 17-2 win at the Diamondbacks last Friday night. He was good. Uh, just didn't pitch for very long. Five scoreless innings, seven strikeouts, only threw 85 pitches. He was dealing with a sore throat. Davey Martinez didn't want to risk anything, so he got Scherzer out of there. But Max has had some kind of year so far. Eight starts, ERA at 210, whip of 0.76, 68 strikeouts versus eight walks. And especially considering that Max only went 85 pitches in his last start, I think he's going to be primed and ready to give you 100 plus pitches on Wednesday night. And I know Wrigley Field can be dicey. And, you know, if you don't keep the ball down, uh, you can be taken deep. And we've seen Max be taken deep at various times in recent years. But really for this season, save for his first start, Max has done a good job of keeping the ball in the ballpark. And again, he's pitching at that Cy Young, Max Scherzer level here on the season. I mean, the numbers he's put up over eight starts, those are peak Max Scherzer kind of numbers that we've seen during his time with the Nationals. But Nats need to get a win here. They've lost the first two games of the series at the Cubs. And like I said, now just four and 10 over the last 14 games. Yeah, and also currently struggling are the Orioles. Eight losses in 10 games now, a 13-6 loss to the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Tuesday night. The O's fall to 17-24 and on the season. And the thing to really be mindful of with this game is a second consecutive awful start for Matt Harvey. In fact, it was the second shortest start of his major league career. And that's saying something because Matt Harvey came into this season with an ERA of 582 over the previous five regular seasons, 2016 through 2020. And yet still, what Harvey did on Tuesday night, the second shortest start of his major league career, six runs in one and two thirds innings, gave up seven hits, two homers, a double and four singles, issued a walk, had just one strikeout through 59 pitches over the one and two-thirds innings. And this was all about what happened in the top of the second. Harvey giving up six runs, recording just two outs in the top of the second. Gave up two three-run homers, gave up a double, gave up four singles. The two three-run homers, a one-out three-run bomb by Brett Phillips and a one-out three-run bomb by Austin Meadows, despite him having been down in the count at one point, one-two. And like I said, second consecutive really bad outing for Harvey. His last outing, that return game to City Field, the 7-1 loss for the Orioles at the New York Mets last Wednesday afternoon. Harvey in that game, seven runs in four and a third innings. So Harvey over his last two starts, a combined 13 runs allowed in just six total innings. Not good. And Matt Harvey, who had been kind of a nice story for the Orioles this season, right? Guy signed to a minor league deal, ends up beginning the season as the number two starter in the Orioles rotation. He's certainly not been dominant in his good outings, but he's been solid to good in his good outings. Uh, but Harvey now over nine starts on the season, ERA of 593, whip of 1.51. And here's the question. You know, I have framed Matt Harvey as a guy who you fix to flip. You know, the idea being, He's here. You hopefully can rehab him, get him, get him on track to a certain degree, and then you can trade him for some more prospects, right? For the Orioles, with where they're at, you know, a tanking team, a rebuilding team, they're not here to fix Matt Harvey and have him here for years to come. The Orioles are here to fix Matt Harvey and then to flip Matt Harvey. Well, if you get to a point where the fixing can be no more and you don't feel like it's realistic anymore to try to keep rehabbing the guy, then there's no point for the guy to be on the team. 
And I'm not saying that we're at that point yet with Matt Harvey, okay? I'm not saying you got to DFA the guy off two consecutive bad starts, but another one or two of these, and yeah, you're going to have to DFA him, all right? Because the Orioles are not here to fix Matt Harvey. They're here to develop young players and to build a solid foundation for years to come. Harvey, to me, is not going to be a part of that solid foundation. So if you can fix him, great. But if it becomes more trouble than it's worth, if it becomes an unfixable situation, and maybe it is with Matt Harvey, we don't know, then there's no point in him being on the ball club. So we'll see. We're not there yet, but we are getting a little closer to that. Off again, 13 runs allowed now in six innings over the guy's last two starts. Game two for the O's against the Rays, Wednesday night at 7.05. John Means versus Ryan Yarp. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. John Means, the ace of the Orioles staff, and he has been a legit ace so far this year. John Means, as of games through Monday, number one in the majors in wins above replacement for baseball reference for pitchers this season. Yes, number one was John Means as of games through Monday in B-War on the season among pitchers, 2.7 on the year. He has been spectacular. Another outing coming on Wednesday night. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me, the AlGaldi podcast 
at yahoo.com. On Thursday's show, we'll hopefully be talking about the Capitals having taken a 2-1 lead on the Bruins. Game three in Boston on Wednesday night in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Hopefully, Boston is kinder to the Capitals on Wednesday night than Boston was to the Wizards on Tuesday night. Also, I'll have plenty more on the Washington football team. Have some great guests in store for you in the coming days. And who knows what may arise. Monday, we had Ryan Kerrigan going to the Philadelphia Eagles. Tuesday, the reports that Washington is parting ways with Morgan Moses. Who knows what Wednesday will bring. And we have the Nationals and Orioles aces pitching on Wednesday night. Max Scherzer at the Chicago Cubs. John Means against the Tampa Bay Rays. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.